I, I've, I enjoyed being here last week. It was great. You guys are very, um, you're an encouraging group. So I don't know if what I said was necessarily, um, you know, that memorable, but I got a lot of compliments on the duck story. So I went to a lot of the seminary to learn how to tell stories about ducks. Um, I will promise you this. This Sunday, we'll end with another duck story. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah! We love duck stories. Paul never tells duck stories. Uh, Paul doesn't tell duck stories. He also doesn't bring a weapon into the pulpit. I have here the dollar... A uh, special knife here that I got at Walmart. It um, it only costs a dollar, but you could hurt yourself badly with this. So children uh, and Zachary, do, do not play with knives. Uh, here's a here's a test this morning. Don't worry, I will clean this up later. Um, I'll find a vacuum somewhere. Could somebody tell me what I am doing right now with this stick? What? Whittling. That's right. You're from the south, aren't you, boy? This is whittling. Uh, what, why is this whittling? Why is this not carving? Why am I not carving? Why is this whittling? Anybody? There's no purpose. Did you say that too? Or did you say that? You guys are an amazing tag team right there. I'm just whittling. Have you ever seen, if you give a kid a knife or a grown kid a knife and a stick and they just do this to whittle. And usually guys will make a sharp object. And then they'll try to stick somebody with that sharp object. So most of the time, whittling, which has no purpose, ends up with somebody getting hurt. There we go. Let's pray. I'm joking. Uh, there's no, there's no, there's no purpose to whittling. That's what that is. This is not carving. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Last week, we talked a little bit um, about, uh, if, from Ephesians 2.10, this concept that we are God's workmanship. Or in the ESV, it says, we are God's handiwork. Or my favorite translation of that verse, Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's masterpiece created for good works. Remember last week, if you were here, you heard me say, God saves us from something ourselves to something himself, a relationship with Christ. And for something, he saves us for a reason and that reason is that we are his masterpiece and he has something planned for us. Well, I could have kept going on and on and on about that Ephesians 2.10 being a masterpiece because th- this is why. Because I am convinced that you are convinced that that is not true about yourself. Because I know it's not true about me. I don't feel like a masterpiece. In fact, if I dissect my life, it only takes a couple seconds for me to see that there's not a lot of good in my heart most of the time. I mean, even as I stand up here, I want you to like me. You know, even as I stand up here, I'm I'm insecure enough in this moment that I take away from the power that is God's word in my own flesh. I mean, it's just who we are as people. We're insecure. We're impatient. We're very needy. And uh, and we don't feel like God's masterpiece. But we are. You see, it's not that we get to assign our own value to ourselves. That's God's job. Unless you sit on a throne in heaven, you cannot assign value to anything unless it's just something temporal, uh, like a painting. 
Uh, recently, I went to a friend's house in Charleston. It's a big fancy house, and there's fancy furniture and fancy paintings and lots of fancy things. And I don't belong in fancy places like that. But I was blown away because this guy had all this art on the walls. He had Monet's and Cassatt's. And I'm not talking about, like, you know, replicas. I mean, the real thing. And um, what's the guy that makes the weird things with the one ear? Picasso. Yeah, he had, that. He had originals in his house. And uh, which I thought there was a part of me that thought I feel very uncomfortable with this because that one cassette is worth more than I'll ever make in my entire life. And it's just hanging on your wall. I mean, it's really not that good. I mean, I, honestly, I could do that maybe. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyhow, but something is worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. That's the simple law of economics, right? Something is worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. If you think your house or the house that you're interested in is worth this and you pay this for it, then that house is worth this. You know, it's a pretty simple uh, principle. And that applied to you is true, too. You are God's masterpiece, and he proved it by giving his one and only beloved son. He paid a very heavy price for us. Something is worth what someone else is willing to pay for. You are worth what God was willing to pay for you. We are his masterpiece. When we try to wrap our brain, and more importantly, we try to wrap our heart around that concept, and we still don't feel like we're his masterpiece. But think about when you apply uh, this principle to anything else in the natural world. Like, for instance, recently my wife, I guess about a year and a half ago, we got to see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Raise, just curious, raise your hand if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon. Okay, if you haven't, you need to go see it in your lifetime. It's, a, it's on the short bucket list for you, I'm, I'm telling you. So we, you know, uh, we, we drove in, and then there's these trails, and there's lots of people, and we walked up, and then there's some bushes, and so you can't really see what's ahead of you, which is really funny because there's this amazing thing just beyond this little shrub brush. And so I kind of like finally see it, and my, my breath just was taken away. And if you remember seeing it for the first time, those of you who have seen it, it just, you go, Whoa. So for the, my, my impression of the Grand Canyon was more like, wow, it's crooked and, and dusty and doesn't run in a straight line. And it's just, you know, and I could just, you could just pick it apart because it's not perfect, right? No, you, you appreciate it for what it is because, you know, it started with a little tiny stream and that stream transformed that whole entire valley into this grand canyon. The same thing's true when you see other grand things like in Charleston, where I live, there's this thing called the angel oak. It's this massive oak tree. And uh, I don't know how many years old it is, but it's. It's old. And so at one point, it was just this little seed. And that little seed was transformed into this massive, giant tree that the limbs are this. I mean, it, it covers more square footage than this entire room. And when I saw it, I went, wow, that tree's crooked. And it's got moss on it. And the greens don't seem to match. And the browns are kind of off. No, of course not. You don't pick those things apart. You say it's beautiful. Same when you see a rainbow. You don't go, oh, I don't know. The orange kind of smears into the purple. I don't really like the ocean. It's bumpy. You know, you, you just don't do that. But with yourself, we pick your, you pick yourself apart. Our desire is to be perfect in and of ourselves. God's desire is to transform us as his son or daughter. 
There's a difference. And that's what I want to look at today. Because there's a difference between whittling and carving. And God is not a whittler. He's a carver. But when you carve something, it gets messy. When God carves us and transforms us, sometimes it's painful. And sometimes we don't like that process. So we pull back and we want to be perfect in and of ourselves. But that's not how this whole gospel thing works. That's not how the kingdom of God works. Look on the the bulletin you got there, the program. There's a construction zone with the bulldozer. When you see a construction zone, you can't see the finished product. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, you don't see the finished product. But God on the throne in heaven sees the finished product. Because he is God and you are not. Isn't that great? We don't have to see the finished product. Oh, we just have to trust. And that's the hard part. When my wife was pregnant for the first time with Bailey... She had one of those pregnancies where she was sick for like nine months. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I don't I have a tummy ache. Uh, I feel woozy. I mean, sick in the bathroom, sick. And it was rough. And uh, I had to remind myself that something good was happening. Like, oh, there's a new life <laughs> in her. You know, and I'm sure she had to remind herself of that. Right. Where are you? So, yeah, you had to go. Oh, yeah, something good is happening here. And uh, for any of the moms in there that have gone through that, you know it's hard to like, remember, oh, there's new life in me. But if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There is something new. I said this last week that uh, God will create something and he does not stop creating. It's not like we're on this assembly line. We are being transformed and it's messy. We're going to look into a... Um, A story today that might be unfamiliar to some of you guys. It's the story of Naaman. Naaman, uh, this story, you could say this is about Naaman, but he's kind of the star of this story. But there's like co-stars that are usually the stars, like this prophet Elijah. I mean, Elijah could be the star or there's this servant girl who could be the star. But they they play a supporting cast because this story for our purposes this morning, is about Naaman. We are Naaman in this story. So open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. In your pew Bible, it's page 311. Transformation is messy, and we see that in Naaman's life. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of of Armin. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to to Armin. He was a valiant soldier. I love how it starts off there with kind of his professional credentials. Now, in our culture, a lot of times, we uh, give ourselves uh, identity in what we do for a living. You do this. I do that. Everybody does this. You meet somebody and you go, oh, what do you do? And what you mean is not like, well, are you a father or a mother or are are you a follower of Christ? What you mean is, what do you do professionally? Because I'm going to judge you based on that. You know, that's a cultural thing. It's a horrible thing. Stop doing that. From now on, when you meet somebody, say, 
Oh, well, tell me about you. Tell me about your family. Tell me about what you love. Tell, you know, I don't know. It might be awkward at first, but it sure beats it. So what do you do? Oh, okay. I've just judged you based on how much money I think you make and where you go to work for the day. But worse than that, that's what we do for ourselves. We give ourselves identity based on our professions. And that is a horrible, horrible thing. That's not how God does it. Okay. God bases his value on us from who he is in our lives, not for who we are and what we can do. You think God's impressed because we're a banker? You think God's impressed because we can build a house? You think God's impressed because we can uh, whatever? No. That came from him. That was his stuff. And he's transforming us. He's transforming Naaman. No offense to bankers and builders. You got my point there, right? <clears throat> the other thing I love about this is it says that um, he was highly regarded. He was a valiant soldier. I saw this movie that came out not too long ago, Act of Valor. It was the story, like true story of these these Navy SEALs. I, I, I'm uh, I'm a very patriotic guy, and I love stories about soldiers and stuff like that. And in fact, I get really emotional when I even start talking about it, so I'll stop. But soldiers and their, and their act of valor, it's amazing what they give their lives to. That's who this guy was. He was brave. I don't want to paint this picture of this, this meek, mild, kind of wimpy guy. He was this valiant soldier and a leader of armies. He was a tough guy. But then we see something else here. After the comma, there's the but. There's always the but in the story. It's not a good story without a good but. Can we strike that from what you're recording back there? (laughs) He was this powerful man, a faithful soldier. The king loved him, a, a man of valor. But he had leprosy. You're a good mom. You're a good dad. You're a good teacher. You're a good whatever profession. You're a good friend. You're a follower of Christ, comma, but there's an underbelly to us all. You could say, oh, well, Jimmy, you were funny up there today and you opened the word and, and golly, you brought the, the word of God alive to us. And so thank you very much. But then you could pull my wife aside and go, is he like that all the time? She'll go, no, sometimes he's a jerk. You know? Sometimes he's not very trustful. Are very trusting, and sometimes he, he sometimes he doesn't even like to read the Bible. I mean, well, there, there's there's a comma and a but to all of us, and you fill in that blank with all kinds of things, and some of those things are very painful, very painful. Cancer, unemployment, a child gone astray. The the underbelly of us all is not what we would sign up for. I said it last week. I'll say it again. We are victims and villains in sin. And I'm sure Naaman did not sign up to have leprosy. Now, we don't have leprosy here in Wilmington. But it is still around in parts of the world. I have a friend that spent a lot of time in India. And he would find people that had leprosy. And the thing about leprosy is this. It's not that it's so painful that you die from the pain. It's that it kills all the nerve endings. 
And then you don't notice when you, you know, stub your toe on something or hit your finger on something. And you can literally just pull body parts off. Be thankful for the pain. Because it's a reminder of God's transformation and formation in you. Because in leprosy, there is no pain. And he's just literally falling apart. Verse 2. Now bands of raiders from Armin had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. So they captured this girl. And she, they made her like a slave servant to, to Naaman's wife. Doesn't sound like a very good position to be in. But she's kind of like the hero of the story here. This could be our story in the church. But it's not because we have too many principles. We're too proud of who we are in the church to be like this. Now think about she's the enemy. She was captured and made to serve Naaman's wife. But then yet she's the one that comes and says this. She said to her her mistress, if only the master who has leprosy, Naaman, would go and see this prophet who is in Samaria, he would be cured of his leprosy. This little girl is thinking of someone outside of herself. She's thinking about others. She's loving her enemies. That sounds familiar to me. We're supposed to do that as Christians, right? I'm not saying she put aside all of her principles. I'm saying she for a moment said, I'm going to care for this man that captured me. He has leprosy. I know the one that can heal. See how that applies to the church? I mean, we're, very, we're, we're a very tidy group in here, you know, very pleasant group of people. The world is not so tidy. The world is not so pleasant. Maybe God is calling this church, you, this community of faith, to love those who maybe go against our principles, who maybe go against our way of life, who are really messy, who are maybe um, just different than we are, because we know the one who can heal them. That's what she does. She's the picture of the church. I love it. Chapter four, or verse four. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aaron replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking this uh, with him, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. Why did he take this money with him, you think? He thought maybe, hey, this is what my healing process is worth to me. I'm going to have to pay somebody. I'm going to go. I'm going to get healed. I'm going to pay them, right? If you go to the, the doctor, you take your, your, your master or visa card with you or you take a checkbook because you know I'm going to get healed. It's going to cost this amount. That's what he did. But he ha- he's dying of leprosy. Do you think it maybe, what if it costs more than what he had? What if it costs more than... Then these ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten set. What if it costs more? Well, he can't go get more money. That's all he had. He took everything he had. But then it says he had ten sets of clothing. Well, how long was he going to be gone? Why did he take ten sets of clothing with him? If he didn't have ten sets of clothing, maybe if he had like two sets of clothing, maybe then he'd have more money. So if he needed to get healing, he'd have more resources to do. Here's the thing. This is what happens. We cover up our brokenness with stuff. He's got leprosy. I'm sure if I had the resources and I had leprosy, what do you think I'd cover myself up with? 
fine clothing. I wouldn't want anybody to see me. Can you picture him? He's, he's a soldier. He's got robes on, maybe some armor. He's covering himself up. Not with one set of clothing, not with two sets of clothing, not three, four, five, ten sets of clothing. And he's going on a short trip and he takes it all with him. Because even though he wants to be healed on the inside, he wants to look good on the outside. Does that resonate with anybody in here? It resonates with me. I want to be healed on the inside, but yet I cover it up on the outside really good. And I'm left wanting more. Our coverings are traps. They're not going to heal us. They're not going to transform us. It's just traps. It's trappings. Let's keep going here. Verse 6. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you can cure him of his leprosy. Thanks for the endorsement, king. Verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See, he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. It's a funny response that he would tear his robe. I don't even wear robes. But if I did and I got angry, I think it'd be pretty cool to tear one. You know, you just tear your robe. I'm angry. I'm tearing my robe. I guess he was just frustrated. He was frustrated because it was messy. I can't believe you're coming to me. Why are you bothering me with this? Well, my God. Not the response that Naaman wanted to hear. Not the response of the, the people that come to church with all their brokenness. And somehow or another, and I'm not, I'm not blaming you specifically. I'm saying the church universal. We act like that. Don't come here with your debt and expect us to pay it. You're the one that got in debt. Don't come here with your AIDS. You're the one that got, out, got, out, got messy with that world. Don't come here with your different views of sexuality. Don't come here with this or that. Who are we? We're not God. You know, That's what the church is doing. And that's why nobody wants to come to Christ. Because the church is standing in the way of people coming to Christ and being healed from this dirty stuff underneath. So what do they do? They put on fancy clothes. They cover it up. Can you blame them? We're not willing to deal with their dirtiness. Why should they be willing to deal with their own dirtiness? Finally, Naaman gets... He finds he finds his way through all this. Verse eight. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king had torn his robes and sent he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elijah was alert and ready for God to use him. As you sit here today, I'm wondering, are you awake? Are you alert? Are you ready to be used by God? Because he will use you. It's a simple prayer. God, use me. He says, okay, because I really want it to. (laughs) I don't need your permission, but it works a lot better if you're willing and trust me. Elijah was willing and ready and alert and ready to heal Verse 9, so Naaman went with his horses and chariots. Can't you see him? He's still trying to look good. He's riding in with his chariot and there's all his horses and his servants. And he's got his fancy robes on inside. He's dying of leprosy. But he wanted to look good. Maybe that's why we get so dressed up to come to church, right? 
Maybe that's why when you go to the doctor, when you feel like you're literally about to die, you still put on like nice clothes. You just don't want anybody to see you weak or struggling. So he gets there and Elijah sent a messenger out to him. He says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought surely he would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. That's not very nice of him. I came all this way and then this guy sends us messenger out to me in the church now and in our lives now we think niceness trumps anything god would do because god is messy and dangerous but we like niceness here's a quote from c.s lewis about niceness niceness wholesome integrated personality is an excellent thing we must try by every medical educational economic and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice just as we must produce a world where all people have plenty to eat but we might we must not suppose that even if we are succeeding in making everyone nice we should have we should have saved their souls a world of nice people content in their own niceness, looking no further but turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce a better Men of the old kind, but produce a new kind of man. God's not really interested in being nice. But every time I go to church, I meet nice people. There's nothing wrong with being nice. I'm just telling you that he desires us to be dangerous. He desires us to be passionate. He desires us to be ones who are ready for a battle. Because that's what the world needs. It doesn't need more nice people. Nothing's going to get transformed or done in the world with nice people. It's going to be done with people who are willing to do hard work and be dangerous. Well, let's get back to our, our friend Naaman here. He goes off in a rage. I love, he says here in verse 12, uh, he names these two rivers. I don't even know how to pronounce those. Abanana, far, far. Aren't these two rivers in Damascus better than the waters in Israel? Couldn't I just go wash in them and be pleased? So he turned away and went off in a rage. He's upset. He doesn't like how this transformation thing works. He doesn't really like this whole plan of transformation for his brokenness. I have a good friend that says, I, I want to be transformed by God, but I wish God would just use basketball and chocolate. Because I like basketball and chocolate. I wish God would just use those things. But that's not how it works. This is what God wanted to do with Naaman. And he didn't like it. He didn't like he had to go down and dunk himself in this river seven times. But if God says, this is what I want to do, our job is to say, okay, have your way, Lord. So what happens? Verse 13, Naaman's servants went up to him and said, my father... 
if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more than when he tells you wash and be cleansed, would you do that? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. Sometimes it's the simple things that we're supposed to do, but we want something complex. We want like this 10 step program to holiness. Sometimes God says, oh, it's just really simple. Deny yourself. Oh, it's really simple. Love your enemy. Oh, but well, but can't I go away to some conference and they tell me like to read this, these books and then do this workbook and go to this small group and then I'll be transformed. No, 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 no. I just want you to trust me. So finally, he does the simple thing and he puts himself in the river and he goes under one time and he comes up and he's healed, right? No. Oh, okay. It's going to take another time. So he goes into the river a second time and he comes up healed, right? No. A third time. Okay. Third time's a charm. Here I go. I'm going underneath. I'm going to come up new. He goes under the river. He comes up and he's all new, right? No. Fourth time. No. Fifth time. No. Sixth time. No. Seventh time. He comes up and his skin is new. And the scripture says it's new like that of a young boy. It's better than what he had hoped for. And in our circumstances, we want them to go away if we would just... God, well, I'll do it one time. I'll be faithful to you one time, God. No. Two times, God. I'll do two times. I'll trust you two times. Maybe not. God, I, okay, I get this. You want to transform me from the inside out three times, God. I'll be faithful three times. No, four times. No, five times. No, six times. No, seven times. And maybe more. God's transformation in us is messy. But it works because he's God. Let me close with this. Verse 19. It's, it's kind of an awkward place to stop in this story, but it's what we most desire. Let's skip all the way down because after he's healed, he tries to go pay and he's like, oh, thank you. Take this money. And Elijah says, no, it's OK. And then Elijah just offers him this great thing. He says, go in peace. Isn't that what you most want? You know, whatever your brokenness is, whatever's inside, whatever's on the underbelly of our lives, we just want to be at peace with it. And that's what transformation brings is peace. And it won't happen the first time or the second time or maybe not even the seventh time. But eventually God's plan for you is peace. Because you are his beloved son or daughter. There's a story. I did this last week too. I told this C.S. Lewis story. You guys are going to think all I read is C.S. Lewis. Which would be okay. Because he's really good. But there's a story that comes from this book, uh, Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. And it's a story of a guy named Eustace, which is an awful name, because uh, I, I maybe, oh, maybe I just said something wrong. Are there any Eustaces in here? Okay. Eustace is this kid. He's on this voyage on this boat. He's the cousin of these kids that are in Narnia, right? And Eustace is kind of a brat. 
He doesn't get his own way. And he's, he's, he's got a rough underbelly. Well, eventually they find this room, and it, uh, it's actually Eustace kind of found it on his own. And the rest of the crew was off over here, but Eustace finds this deal, and it's, um, it's a room full of treasure. But there's this dragon in there. And uh, he, he steals the treasure, and then he finds himself turned into the dragon, to this hideous creature with these scales and everything like that. And he didn't like that. Okay, that was his the thing that he didn't like about himself. Hey, I'm a dragon. I don't like this. But read what happens. He, he encounters Aslan, the Christ figure. And this is what I want to do here. I want you guys to close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. God has something for you here. And I'm going to read this. The water was as clear as anything I thought if I could just get in there and bathe, it would ease my pain, the pain I felt felt in my leg. But the lion, Aslan, told me that I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said it with words or out loud. I just know he said it. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I didn't have any clothes on when suddenly I thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their own skins. Oh, of course, I thought that's what the lion meant. So I started scratching myself and my scales became coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off so beautifully like it does after an illness or after you peel a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the water to bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that my skin was hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means I had another smaller suit of scales underneath the first one. So I have to get that off too. So I scratched and tore again and this underskin peeled off beautifully and I stepped out and left it behind beside the other one and I went down into the water to bathe. Well, exactly the same thing happened again and I thought to myself, oh dear, however many sets of skin do I have to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for a third time and got the third skin just like the other two. And stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been for no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if he spoke. You have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate by now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought he had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, when you've picked up a picked a scab on a sore place, it hurts so bad. But it's fun to see the scab going away. Well, he peeled this beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there... It was lying in the grass, only much ever so thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft 
as a pilled switch and smaller than I had been. And then the lion caught hold of me. I didn't like it much for I was very tender underneath now where I'd had no skin. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. At that, it became perf- after that, it became perfectly delicious as soon as I started swimming and splashing. I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I'm sure they have no muscles, not like Prince Caspian's, but I was glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Perhaps he dressed me with his paws, but I don't exactly remember that bit. But he did somehow or another in new clothes. The same ones I have on right now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which makes me think it was all a dream. Can you guys see that? This boy, a lion, he's trying to pull off his own scales, but it, he has to let the lion do it. And it's painful. But it works. And he's new. Like Naaman. And like what we want to be. I told you I'd, I'd finish with a duck story. I have this. It's a little tiny wooden duck. I keep this on my desk. I, I have this because I found it at a yard sale or something. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a poor imitation for a duck decoy. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Those duck decoys that people like to put in their houses if they live in the south for some reason. I don't, I don't get it. But we put duck decoys up on like our mantles and we go, look at the duck decoy up there. Isn't that nice? But it's like a collector's item. We have these duck decoys. You know what I'm talking about, right? And these guys do it. What they do is they don't whittle the wood, do they? No, they carve it out to look like a duck. Well, there's this guy that lives outside of Charleston, this little tiny town called Cottageville. And he's like the world famous duck carver. I don't know what, I don't know how I got to be so good or whatever. But he, he, that people go from, come from far and away to find his ducks. And they did an, a magazine article on him. And they said, the, the guy that was doing the interview said, uh, how do you carve these ducks so perfectly? And then he said, and this is pretty, pretty profound. He said, well, I start with a block of wood and I carve away everything that doesn't look like a duck. (laughs) Our job is this, to carve away everything in our life that doesn't look like Jesus Christ. But God's job is this. And he is more than able. He carves away everything in our lives that does not look like transformation to become what he has intended for us. And sometimes it's painful. No, scratch that. Most of the time it's painful. But he will get the glory in the end. Let's pray.